0: spent quite a little time going through what Christ is not looking for in a wife. Uh, Today I'd like to turn that around. It could get depressed and discouraging listening to what we shouldn't be, but often are. So today let's turn it around and ask a different question. What is he looking for in a wife? And we can approach this, I think, in a very positive way because there are certain characteristics he desires of us, men and women. I get chided once in a while because the Bible puts it in the feminine gender when it speaks of these things, and yet at the same time, uh, we men are going through the same process of learning to be a wife for Christ. So it certainly applies in both ways. It's just that God set it up the way that he has in the human frame so that we might learn between husband and wife what the relationship should be. So all of this applies to the men as well as the women uh, in a spiritual sense, certainly. So, okay, girls, I said it. Sometimes the women feel a little put upon when you go through these things, uh, that you're singling them out, but that is not the intent. Whatever, all the words of God are given as inspiration from God to all people. So there's none that do not affect each one of us in spite of our gender. I'm going to go to Proverbs 31 today, and this chapter begins with... uh, a message for King Lemuel from his mother, and she says, What, my son, and what the son of my womb, and what the son of my vows? What about you, my son? And she shows here that this is an individual, her boy, that she loved very much, but he was in the position of a king, just as you and I are both qualifying to be kings and priests, that refers to, refers to women as well. At the same time, we're being prepared to be a queen, men and women as well. So the analogies go back and forth. But for anyone in a position to be a leader or to become a leader, this is written to. And I'm not going to go through this in detail, but uh, to summarize it, she said, don't give your strength to wine, women, and song. To the pleasures of this life, because in so doing, you're liable to forget the true way of life, the laws of God, and you will forget to take up the cause of the poor, the needy, uh, those who are about to die, and we look today at a society that is full of individuals who are in despair, frustration, discouragement at the way conditions are in the world and getting worse by the moment. We're also looking at a church that is falling apart more and more as time goes on, more people giving up, more people quitting, more people changing from things they should be doing to other things, and we're here to remember those things. And though it uses the analogy of strong drink uh, for those who are in need, that has to be used on a physical basis very carefully, and some cannot imbibe at all. Because they can't control it, but it is there for the occasional time when you just can't handle it. Uh, it says, but from a spiritual standpoint, we are here to have strong drink, strong food, uh, and remember, and not remember our spiritual poverty anymore. We are to get doctrine that will help us overcome our spiritual needs and make them spiritual strengths so we are not to forget those who are in need and plead the cause of the poor and needy it says in verse 9 so there is the misuse there is the wrong use which we have discussed and here this chapter begins with a warning to anyone who would be in a position of leadership and that would include then all of us here today either leaders or potential leaders Uh, in the world tomorrow. So it's for us. And then it changes in verse 10 from the misuse, the wrong kind of woman, both physically and spiritually, whether it be an individual woman or a church, to those who forget those who have need and turn to other things. It says, who can find a virtuous woman? How can it be done? How can you find a good one? Now, the Father and the Son have been searching for, through 6,000 years of man's history essentially, sorting through human beings trying to find some good ones, trying to find a total of 144,000 who can be a queen, who can be kings and priests, who can rule the world with love, consideration, kindness, gentleness, mercy, the right amount of discipline, perfectly balanced in everything that is done, and doing things perfectly. Now that is beyond the scope, really, of us as human beings, but we have seen recently in sermons about the holy days that a great deal of change has to come, and most of it in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. When human nature drops away, and the true spirit of God becomes us, or we become it. And that transformation is a bigger transformation than we will ever make as human beings, because we are always weighted down by human nature and by what we see around us. So it's very difficult. God only picked a few out of the Old Testament. Many of them are listed in one chapter, Hebrews 11. And then we did see a change after Christ came and lived on the earth and sent his Holy Spirit back as a comforter, a strengthener, an enabler, to enable us in righteousness. We can find all kinds of enablers on the earth to enable us in unrighteousness. They're everywhere. But to find enablers in righteousness is pretty rare. But with that, those who had been weak and cowardly became strong and powerful. I'm speaking of the apostles, and I'm speaking of the early New Testament church. And out of that effort, we saw a change. I've documented that of Stephen, who became powerful in God, and who gave his life in a very dramatic fashion after uh, getting in the face of those detractors from God in his day and age. So we began to see success not just in a few leaders but among the rank and file of people that God called and that should be a great encouragement to us because Paul called some of them first fruits and showed that they would be in the kingdom of God. So some success began to be had in the engagement period leading up to the marriage of the king. That had not happened in the Old Testament, and it happened to just really a relatively small few thousand in the New Testament church for a period of about 70 years, and essentially died out, and only small, minor traces of truth can be found through the Middle Ages until God raised up Herbert Armstrong to call a bunch of people to righteousness. Out of that, many who were called, and that has essentially stopped A few now are being chosen to round it out. And we were among those favored few. So when he asks the question, who can find a virtuous woman? You look at this world and they're very, very difficult to find. They have to be made. They have to be developed. He compares it to a ruby, for her price is far above rubies. A rubies are one of the most precious stones sought after in the world. Perhaps in our modern culture and society, diamonds have eclipsed that, so we could throw diamonds in there uh, Her price is far above diamonds. Diamonds, they say, are a girl's best friend. Well, maybe we all need to become diamonds, big, beautiful ones, without cracks and splits and yellow spots, and all of those things which diminish a diamond from clarity and beauty. But rubies are made the same way diamonds are, through a great deal of heat and pressure. And so it is that God has caused the church to come under great heat and pressure to cause us to be spiritually far above rubies or diamonds or anything on this earth that you might like. So then he begins to define. He says it's very hard to find one, but here's what he's looking for. Now if you're going to go somewhere, you need to know what it is you're looking for. Abraham went out looking for a city. God didn't give him a full description, didn't give him all the details. He says, go find it. Maybe he gave him a certain amount of information to have some idea of what he was looking for, didn't tell him exactly where it was. He tells us in this chapter and other places of the Bible, what it is we need to be, what we are to live up to. But he doesn't always tell us exactly how to get there, does he? It is a venture that we all have to face, and it becomes an adventure at times and trying to find the way to achieve that which we are looking for. But it needs to be defined as to what it is. Therefore, when we find it, we will know what it is that we found. It's just like when he says, Worship me with your whole heart. And I have trouble understanding what that means. Why? because I have not achieved it fully. I don't know what percentage it is. It goes up and down from day to day and moment to moment. I would like to think that I love God and serve Him and obey Him with my whole heart, but I find humanity in my way so often. I don't mean other humans, I mean my humanity. So I don't know what it fully means. I know that's my goal. Now when I get there, I will probably far better understand what it meant than I did 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 years prior to achieving it. I hope we're all making progress on that. You know, when you start looking something up on a computer, it shows you on a little screen, 5 percent, 10 percent, 15 percent, so it finally gets up to 100 percent, the picture appears. It's a thing that requires progress and time, and then the picture appears. Ah, this is what I was looking for. So here in this chapter, and in some others I will get to a little later, it describes what he is looking for. Who can find it? Then he describes it. The heart of her husband does safely trust in her. Now, on a human level, These things are so very, very true. And in a spiritual level, with Christ looking for individuals, male and female, to be co-heirs and co-rulers of the earth with him, he is looking for someone he can trust utterly and totally and forevermore. Now, God's trust in the angels was divided when Satan rebelled, and a third of the angels went with him. That sin and that breach of trust has been a very sore spot in the eyes of God ever since. And it's a sore spot to this day as as Satan goes before his throne and accuses us on a regular and daily basis. Now his trust in ancient Israel was shattered because that woman who vowed to serve him showed that she would not. And it ended up in a really messy divorce and captivity and all kinds of problems. The one that he is preparing now, he wants a woman that he can safely trust in so that he shall have no need of spoil. Whatever in his kingdom could be wrecked and ruined, he is looking for a woman that will not do that. But nothing will spoil. The beauty of the throne of God was spoiled by Satan and the angels' rebellion. The beauty of the Garden Eden of Eden was spoiled by the sin of woman and man. And we we were cast out as humans and have been out ever since. God wants to fix that. And he is calling a special people to heal that breach today, to make things right between God and man. Now he already has a few that he names that have accomplished that. Encouragingly to us, none of them were perfect. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David... Peter, James, John, Paul, none of them were perfect. And yet, they overcame and grew enough that God has included them as those that he feels he can truly trust in throughout all eternity, has even enumerated some of their jobs as those who would preside over the tribes of Israel and the world tomorrow. He's gone that far. He knows that in their hands he will not have spoil. And he's looking to add to the numbers of those who will work under those apostles and help be the bride of Christ. So here is one thing he is really looking for, is something or someone or ones that he can safely trust in and know that there will be no spoilage in the kingdom of God. So we need to be trustworthy. It's one of the things he's looking for in a virtuous woman. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. Now, our life can be eternal. We're working that out here on this earth as men and women, trying to show and type what he's talking about here on a human level. That a physical husband could trust his wife in this way and know that she will always do him good and not evil. And he's looking for it on a spiritual level in an even greater way. She seeks wool and flax and works willingly with her hands. One of the things he tells the end-time church is to Work. Four things we've gone over out of Scripture several times, to uh, not be afraid, to uh, be of good courage, to work, and the other one doesn't come to mind, four things mentioned several times. So she's one who is willing to work, to be of a ready mind, to willingly work hard, to accomplish the purposes of her husband. Now, we need to understand and take the raw materials that God gives us, that's the Scriptures, and turn them into character, turn them into our personality, come to be like those things that He gives us in this Word. This Word is the flax, it's the wool, it's the natural resource that God has given us to mold and make different products that are good and right. We need to know what he wants, what he needs, and work willingly to produce that. And that is one of the big problems in the woman, the church today, as a whole, overall, everywhere, is not understanding the focus and the purpose of God for now. Now, the focus and the purpose under Herbert Armstrong was to call many. And that was done. He finished his job He began that temple, and he finished it, as God said he would. And he was a type of the end-time Zerubbabel of Zechariah 4, 5, and 6, or not 4, but 5 and 6. It was a minor type compared to the last one, which is yet to come in the latter temple. But he certainly was a type, as he said he was at one point, and he was right, as I look back in retrospect, the Prophecies are fulfilled over and over until the final, biggest ones, the climactic ones, are done right at the end. So he and his son Ted certainly were a type of Zerubbabel and Joshua of Zechariah and Haggai, and did build a temple. And the purpose of that temple was fulfilled before Herbert Armstrong died. And when he died, or just before he died, he said... My job is finished, even though he did not fully understand what it had been. Get the church ready. Get the bride prepared. Have the woman be ready to marry Christ. And the ministry as a whole missed what he said, never focused on it, and tried to finish the job that he said he had finished. And most have left the church in serious disrepair. They have not helped her become what this is saying right here. They have instead focused on an outward-reaching work to the world rather than to preparing the bride. Now the last thing in Revelation that it says is the bride has prepared herself and made herself ready. So our final job as a church, as a whole is to make ourselves ready. And once made ready, there is a final preaching to the world that has to go around the world, and it did not happen under Herbert Armstrong. That was a calling. Now we have to finish the calling by becoming ready. And once we become ready, then a final outreach to the world, not of calling, but of final warning, will be given. But we have to be in the position to be able to be the kind of example that God could use before the world. And that is what the church as a whole is missing today. They're still trying to do a job that is finished instead of doing the job that is at hand. The two witnesses, the last Zerubbabel and Joshua, will do the job Herbert Armstrong thought he was supposed to do. He thought he was the final chapter. And he was not. He was the next to the last chapter. But he was a chapter. For those who think he was a false prophet, no, he wasn't. He had limited vision because God had given him a limited job. Now we are here to build another temple. And it must be better than with that which came before. So we must make ourselves ready for that effort. And this chapter gives us a great deal of insight, understanding, and help in achieving that. Proverbs 31 really ought to become one of our favorite chapters, because we need to read it fairly frequently to keep ourselves in mind of what it is we're trying to be. So she's willing and ready to work with whatever she's given to do her job. She is like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. So she reaches out to obtain what she needs. Now, you and I all have needs, don't we? We have to reach out to God. He's a long way away in many respects on his throne in heaven. And he is in this book. And the words here are what we need to do the job we have been given to do, whether we're a physical woman or whether we're a spiritual woman, male or female. We have to go get what we need to provide for the family. It isn't right at hand, is it? Look at the people on this earth. How many of them even begin to have the raw materials, the basic knowledge, the insights to become what God is looking for when Christ returns. Go out on the street. How many will you find? Do you realize how incredibly blessed we are to, to have any kind of understanding of what God is doing and what he is looking for in a wife or his son? Or what his purpose and even creating man is for, to become God. There are so very, very few that begin to understand even the very basics. And they would have to go who knows where to find that. And right now, there's not much place to even go. And only those who had access to Herbert Armstrong, essentially... There may be a few here and there at the 11th hour, but essentially you had to have that background to have any understanding of what's happening in the world and why. Without it, you're dead in the water. You're lost. have no idea. Maybe we take it for granted sometimes, the basics that we understand. And we're looking at the finer points and tweaking here and there what we need to to understand better. But do we take for granted what we have? That's what we did in Worldwide. We took, took it for granted, and then God took it away. So we have to go far to find it. He says in the book of Amos that there would be a famine of the word, and it would not be easy to find what we need to find. Most of the church of God right now the vast majority of it does not even know where to go to find what it is that they are lacking that caused them to fall apart. Many of them don't even think they've fallen apart. But some of them are in the process of falling apart right now, today, again. Something the Scripture said would happen. Now, obviously, They either do not know what is causing them to fall apart, and they certainly don't know the solutions and how to resolve the problem so that it does not happen. They don't know. They have no idea. Don't know how to stop it. At least three large churches, trees, are going to fall apart, come apart, and be destroyed. In one month, it says, a very short period of time, very shortly now. It won't be long until that happens. I'm not here to point any fingers. I'm just here to say that most of the church cannot read this chapter and really, truly understand what it's talking about. But you can't. You are incredibly blessed. She rises also while it is yet night and gives meat to her household and a portion to her maidens. We are still in spiritual darkness. Most of the church has no clue about where they need to go or what they need to do to get back into the good graces of God and stop the shattering and splintering and tearing and rending that is still going on in the church. They're in darkness. They don't understand. Yet there are those who can, during that period of darkness and spiritual famine, find the spiritual food that is needed and be able to see in the dark that surrounds the church well enough to do the things that are needed for the household. I think you have enough light to work now while it is yet dark. For most. Now that's not bragging on our part, that's just the simple truth. That's what it is. We need to take advantage of it. It's still dark out there. We need to rise up and be working to be sure that we have meat for our household and a portion for the maidens that everybody has what they need to prepare themselves as the bride of Christ. Now, that's my responsibility as part of the mother to us all. It's your responsibility as the children of God to hear and to prepare and to get done what needs to be done while it is yet dark. There's a great deal of latitude given to a woman in this chapter, more so than mankind has given women in the past. But Christ gives his potential bride a great deal of knowledge and leeway and opportunity to do the things that need to be done, even as a secure uh, human husband is able to allow his wife to have a great deal of latitude without offending his masculine pride and thinking she's taking over his job. There is a wrong way to do that, which is the feminist, rebellious way of having a certain amount of freedom and autonomy. And then there is the correct and godly way, where a husband is big enough and secure enough that he can allow his wife to do things knowing that he can safely trust in her not to cause spoil or ruin to his family, but that she will use her talents and abilities to enhance and make the family a better place to reside in. It takes a secure man to do that. A lot of men are are leaders simply by benefit of having a bigger arm in hand or stick in hand, to beat her down, whether physically or just emotionally and mentally, to be under his thumb. It requires a bigger man, and on a spiritual level it requires someone Christ-like to be able to give us the opportunity and the latitude we need to be able to provide what is needed by his family. Now, his family, his children in the millennium, once he returns, are going to be in need of everything. Physically, even. But spiritually, even more so. They will have seen Satan's system, his religion, his house, be divided and come apart and be destroyed. And they're going to be looking for an answer. And even their new world order, with the beast and the false prophet who promised them that everything would be good if they would worship and follow the beast and that is going to look like the only righteous solution. It is going to be so huge, so powerful that all the world is going to be sucked in to only be terribly betrayed when it's all over. And they're going to be insecure and afraid and worried when Christ returns to rule the earth because they will have thought that Christ returned, They will have thought that the kingdom of God was being set up on the earth and they will entrust it and run to it and embrace it. (coughs) And after three and a half years, it will fall apart before their very eyes. Those are going to be very untrusting people. and we are going to be there to give them hope and encouragement and strength and teach them how to have a happy family, both as a family physical unit and as a spiritual unit on this earth to bring peace and happiness to all mankind. Now, our potential husband is checking us on this today, to see if we are going to be among those who will be able and willing to take on that task. Now notice some of the latitude he gives in verse 16. She considers a field and buys it. Most husbands in modern America would be appalled if their wife went out and bought a field. That's not a woman's job. Go back in there and cook, woman. Woman. There's a lot of latitude given here, isn't there? Things that would be a man's job, you'd think. Well, this is Scripture. There are Scriptures we don't like sometimes, but this is some that some men might not like. That's my job. Not necessarily. If you have a capable woman that you can safely trust in, she should be capable of making some financial decisions. Those decisions might be more... Then what's for dinner, or whether I should buy this or that knack, knick-knack at the store. Now, if he can't trust you in how you spend on knick-knacks, I don't know how he's going to trust you in buying a field. <clears throat> but if you control your appetites as a physical woman, and you buy those things that are needful and good for the family and are not selfish, then perhaps your husband could trust in you with bigger things, like buying a field. Because if you're faithful in little, you'll be faithful in much. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. Now, God wants the church, spiritually, to buy a field and prepare a vineyard the grapes, the sweet fruit of the vine for Christ. Now this may be somewhat prophetic as well, because God did say in uh, Jeremiah that Jeremiah was to go out and buy a field, and that it had representation in the spiritual realm. I think it's interesting that he told us to go out and dwell in the wilderness and in the field in Micah and other scriptures. So he entrusted us to buy a field. And we looked and looked, and we finally found one that we could afford. And it wasn't in a very pretty, well, it's in a beautiful setting, but the community around it isn't all that whoopee, if you will. What God made here is beautiful, and I hope that what we make here is beautiful to him, and that it begins to transcend a lot of things that are in the world around us because we do things God's way and we set an example why did he bring us to a little area, not a very big community that is full of weak and base people because we were the same and in setting us in this setting right here among a weak and base people in the community around us which is not very big but it is we can base. There are a lot of drug problems, alcohol problems, uh, unemployment problems due to laziness and character, not lack of jobs, around us here. I think he put us here on purpose, and I think he led us to this field we're living on, in the wilderness, so that we might learn to rise above what is around us and be an example To a small community first, and then ultimately to the whole world. So there are individual level lessons here. There are church level lessons, and then there are eternal lessons of womanhood, and proper womanhood, and becoming the queen of the king of kings. She girds her loins with strength and strengthens her arms. If she is weak, she does those things to make herself strong. If we find that we are weak and base, then we begin to do those things that will strengthen us and make our arms strong so that we can do the job that is to be ahead. I don't think it was by accident (coughs) that God named or began the church in the end time through a man named Strong Arm or Arm Strong and the right, powerful arm of God is mentioned in Scripture. So there is a type there. Even as I think in the latter temple, a certain name will probably be used because of the spiritual meaning that is therein involved. I'll not get into detail of that at the moment, but I have a name in mind. (coughs) She perceives that her merchandise is good, we need to be able to look at ourselves and see that we rose up early on a spiritual level. We worked hard to cause our husband to trust us, and we are preparing to provide for the family that, he is, that we have here and that he will give us in the future. And we are supposed to perceive that what we have is good. It is not spiritual pride and self-righteousness, for us to recognize that God has given us good knowledge, good understanding, and that we're beginning to adapt ourselves to that and cause our character to grow and see the overcoming that we can do. Her candle goes not out by night. She's willing to work any time, any place, to be of a ready and willing mind to do anything that needs to be done to be sure that the family of God is taken care of. So she works tirelessly, as we should, as human beings. Now I know that a lot of us are getting older and weaker and dumber. You know, the mind begins to go. And it gets harder to have even the physical energy that you need to do the things that need to be done. But well, we speak both physically and spiritually here. Now, if we rise up while it is night, while the world is still in darkness, and prepare ourselves so that we can work in the light, you know what it's going to be like in the world tomorrow? We will work without ceasing. We won't need sleep. We'll be able to work 24-7 all the time and never get tired or weary or weary of well-doing. And we're in training for that right now, to be ready and willing, no matter what. She lays her hand to the spindle, and her hands hold the distaff. She takes the tools that are in her hands, and she works with them. She stretches out her hand to the poor. Now, isn't that what Christ said, take care of the poor, the needy? Now, we can do that on a physical level by helping out financially, physically, in many, many different ways, for those that we see in need around us on a physical level. But we can also be prepared when the time comes to reach out to the poor and the needy of the church who are going to be confused and frustrated and will have need. Those who have gone through a spiritual famine and are going to be starving spiritually. And if you talk to people out across the nation, in the world, who are still with the church, many of them say, well, I'm not getting any food. I'm looking for some spiritual strength. I need the power of good food. And say, I'm just not getting it. There is a spiritual famine going on in the church of God today. We're about to have a physical famine in the nation of Israel very shortly just as we have a spiritual famine now. And we need to be able to stretch our hand out and be ready to help those who come looking for food, spiritual strength that food provides. Good food, the meat, not the milk. They're hungry for more than the milk. And that's mostly what they're getting out there. I'm sorry. Old time-worn things that were done in the first temple of the latter times that did not work then beyond a calling work that allowed us to take it for granted and allowed us to go sleep at the switch and become lackadaisical. And they're getting the same thing now that we were getting then for the most part. It has changed very little. Is it any wonder most of the church is still asleep today. They were vomited violently out, cleaned themselves up a little bit, and went right back to sleep. I hope that we are not among those, and if we are, I hope we shake ourselves awake so that we will be ready to stretch our hand forth to the needy and to help them when they come. God is going to call a remnant of the church to build the latter temple. They're going to come from all over the world. We'll need the gift of tongues to even be able to understand one another. And we will build the latter temple. And I hope you and I are a part of that. But here's the instruction. Here's what we need to get ourselves ready to be a part of that. She is not afraid of the snow for her household. Winter can come over this world the cold, hard facts of what is happening in the world. We're having a very hard winter this year in many areas, cold and snow and ice around the world. God is looking for a people who are prepared and don't have to fear the winter that is not only physically upon the world today, but the spiritual winter that is coming with the beast. It's not going to appear to be winter at first, but the cold will arrive. For all her household are clothed with scarlet, with fine or double garments, my margin says. She's made enough for her family that they are layered. Not just one garment to cover us, but layered, double covered. We need to be double covered to withstand what is coming. It's not going to be pretty. It's not going to, going to all be warm and fuzzy. It's going to be very difficult. She makes herself coverings of tapestry. Her clothing is silk and purple. She's shooting for royalty. She's trying to go the royal way, not to just be a successful human being on the earth, whatever that means in the eyes of men, mostly monetary. But she's seeking the true eternal spiritual things, and she is preparing herself to be queen of the universe. So we have to look above our weak and baseness, weakness and baseness, at a bigger picture, at an opportunity, and prepare ourselves to be royal, because that's what we're called to be, kings and queens, priests forever, wife of Christ. That's our job. That's our calling. That's what we're here for. Anything short of less, that, anything short of that, is failure for you and me. We'll get to another chapter here in a moment, but uh, is going to echo this somewhat. So keep it in mind. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. So. They say behind every successful man is a nagging, I mean a successful woman. It's hard for a man, even in this life, to achieve much unless he has the support of the right kind of wife. If there is fracture and division and fighting in the family, then it's hard to focus on those things that would make either or both together a success in life. And the same is true with us. We need to support our husband, our husband-to-be, and he will be known as the elder in the land, won't he? And will be known as his wife. So our wagon is hitched to the one who is going to be the elder. And we're here to help him and to make his program a success. You know, if he thought he could do the whole thing by himself, he wouldn't need a wife. The Father and the Son would just rule throughout eternity. But he wanted to help me. He wanted some help doing the job of bringing world peace, finally, to this earth forevermore. And he wants us transformed to help him do that. He needs us. We need him. It is a mutual need. It's not just a want. The father and the son need human beings to flesh things out, or to <laughs> I guess that's the wrong word, we won't be flesh. but to widen his kingdom, because they are not happy without a kingdom that is in an increase forevermore. <clears throat> they have a need to share what they have, because they are love, and love is outgoing. And therefore, they need to be able to give. That's why God and Christ are so patient, so merciful, so long-suffering. They need to have us succeed. They want us to be there. As Paul put it, it is his good pleasure to give us the kingdom. That's what he desires with his whole heart, is to give us that kingdom. Why do we rebel? We're human and Satan's still around, so it makes it difficult. But here's what he's looking for. We're here to help his kingdom be a success on this earth. She makes fine linen and sells it, and she delivers clothes to the merchant. Girdle doesn't mean what it meant 40 years ago. But she's able to produce that which others would see value in willing to buy, wanting to have. Didn't he tell the ten virgins to go to those who have to obtain what you need? We need to have what the church of God needs. If we're truly to be prepared to be a queen of Christ, We have to have not only what the world is going to need in the world tomorrow, we need to have what the church of God needs today. He is going to bring a remnant of his church together to build the latter temple, about 10%. Zechariah indicates about 30% of those left behind will repent during the tribulation and make it to become a part of the bride of Christ. So he's going to have quite a number of people out of the end-time church. Some will overcome and grow ahead of time and be used to build the temple. Others are going to be left behind and go through the fire to temper them and prepare them. But it will happen. Now, we need to have the answers for those people, don't we? Somebody's got to have them. Why not us? See, this book, and particularly today, Proverbs 31, is a good place to look so that we might begin to fully grasp and understand and be reminded, if we already understand, where it is that we're headed and what we need to be. What we have needs to have value. What will be of value to God's people? The truth. The real understanding of what needs to be done in the end time. And the kind of character that is needed to prepare ourselves as a bride and to help others prepare themselves as well. That's what Herbert Armstrong told the church. My job of calling is done. Now get the church ready. I take that seriously. He knew what he was talking about. I talked to him personally, and he said, I shouldn't be taking these pills, but I'm afraid if I die, the church will fall apart. As he took his pill. And he died. And the church fell apart. He was aware of what was needed. And the ministry today basically is blinded to what is needed. They cannot see beyond Matthew 24, 14, and it's not their job. It's the job of the two witnesses to preach the gospel around the world, and then the end will come. We need to be making fine linen and clothing that the church is going to need. They don't even know they need it yet. But they're going to wake up one of these days and know they need it. Who is going to have the product? Why not us? Why not you and me? Somebody's got to do it. Why not us? Is anybody else going to? I don't see much sign of it anywhere. So why don't we wake up and do it and rise up early while it's still dark and have ready those things which are of need? There's an opportunity here. There's an opportunity for some to turn to God right now. And that's the reason he blew us apart is that we might turn to him. So every individual is under that pressure Everyone who was in the church of God before it fell apart, by virtue of being spewed out, was told it's your responsibility to fix what was wrong. And most are still trying to go on doing what had been being done instead of fixing what was wrong. So why not you and me? Is it self-righteous to say, let's do it? No, everybody needs to wake up and do it, but most, the Scripture says, will not. So do we refrain because not many will and it would be self-righteous to try? No, God wanted us to repent. He wanted us to change. He wanted us to wake up while the darkness is still over the church and the world and be ready with the light to shine when it's time for it to shine. You say we're in a holding pattern, maybe in terms of some events, but we're certainly not in a holding pattern of growing and overcoming and focusing our lives on God. And that's one reason I went through 1 Corinthians 7, to help us all understand, married or unmarried, forget it. It doesn't matter in comparison to what we have been given to do. The physical, in other words, Paul was trying to say, is essentially unimportant compared to the spiritual. That's the message he's trying to get across. He used singleness or married as an example of it. And there could have been other examples used but that one is near and dear to everyone's heart as a human being. And that's one of the reasons he used it, to show that marriage here on this earth is only a type of that which is to come and is limited in scope, limited by death, and limited by the end of the age. But that which is eternal and spiritual is forevermore, and it's far more important by comparison than whether we're physically married or not. So he said, hey people, let's put the spiritual first. Let the physical take care of itself. Let's get focused on what is important and quit worrying about what's not. Not that marriage isn't important to human beings, but I'm saying by comparison. And when you're at the end of the age and you're in a crisis time, it is time to focus on becoming the bride of Christ rather than your marriage as a bride already or to come to that opportunity and state. And since opportunities are currently limited, why frustrate ourselves? Why not focus on that which is eternal and important and will pay off in the future in peace and happiness and joy forevermore. A happy marriage might be a goal and a purpose and one of the highest and most satisfying things that can happen to human beings. And that is one of the reasons God uses it as an example spiritually of what is to be. But we're at a time when the marriage of the Lamb is right on the horizon. It's not far away. So the physical, though important to us in many respects, is not important by comparison to where we need to be going. That's the point. I'm not trying to say, well, Daryl says don't get married, or don't get divorced, whichever it is you want. I'm trying to show, as Paul was, that the spiritual comes first. The marriage to Christ is more important than a physical marriage. Okay? Strength and honor are her clothing. She shall rejoice in time to come. This is prophetic, not just on a human level. On a human level, you work at a marriage and work at it until you have a successful relationship and a successful family. On a spiritual level, our rejoicing is going to be mostly in a time to come. We're still on on a spiritual level like those first weeks, months, and years of physical marriage when you're trying to blend two different personalities, two different backgrounds, all kinds of different viewpoints together together and learn to live happily ever after, or until one of you dies. This is eternal, and the time to come stretches before us. She opens her mouth with wisdom. Not gossip, not nagging, not frustration, not complaining, but with wisdom. What is wisdom for, as expressed by the mouth? Wisdom learned, lessons learned, are there to help others so they don't make the same mistakes you and I might have made. It says the older women are there to teach the younger women. Paul talks about that. So that they don't make the same mistakes in their marriage and their child rearing that the older woman might have made and learned from. We get so full of pride and selfishness that uh, we get defensive when somebody tries to help us. And it's very hard for an older person to help a younger because of pride and ego. But that's the way God says it ought to be. Now we should be a little bit older woman in terms of spiritual understanding and growth if we're to be here to help some of those who are younger and more tender in their understanding in the future and in the world to come forevermore. We need to be able to open our mouth with wisdom. And in her tongue is the law of kindness. The law of kindness. Not meanness, not animosity, not jealousy, envy, all those works of the flesh, but kindness. We need to be able to peacefully love and unite those people who are coming out of a spiritual famine very shortly now and help them learn the things they need to know to please God and Christ, and to get the end-time work done. Isn't it nice to be able to go through this chapter and contemplate these things from a standpoint of knowledge and know what we need to do and to educate and re-educate us to the things that Christ is looking for? He wants a woman with a law of kindness in her tongue. She looks well. She's not haphazard about it. She looks well to the ways of her household and eats not the bread of idleness. She's not lazy. She's energetic. She's willing, anxious to help, do everything she can to make sure things are taken care of. I read a story in a childhood book, one of the few I remember from my childhood, It was a very um, dramatic thing to me, because it it was written from a different standpoint. But it was entitled, I Can Sleep on a Windy Night. And this farmer was looking for a good hired hand, and he interviewed various ones. And this one fellow came, and the farmer says, Well, how are you qualified to be my hired hand? And his answer was, I can sleep on a windy night. The farmer looked at him and said, what does that have to do with being a good farm man? So he said, well, I'll hire you anyway. And then one night, heavy winds came. Things that could destroy anything that was the least bit loose on a roof or a bad fence, knock it down. And his hired hand slept. The farmer learned that the roof was on good, the corrals were in good shape, that he did not have to worry on a windy night, but he too could sleep on a windy night. And he finally came to understand what the young fellow meant. I take care of things. When something goes wrong, you don't have to worry. Everything is as it should be. Now that's what Christ is looking for in us. When the winds come, when the storm arrives, when trouble that this world has never known hits with the fury of a tornado or hurricane, we should be able to lie down and sleep and not fear because we know things are taken care of, that everything is as it should be. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. She takes care of things. She gets them the way they need to be. Many daughters have done virtuously, but you excel them all. Now you can look out at the church of God and you can see that many are trying to do this and trying to do that, and they're doing some good things. But out of all those who have been scattered, Christ is looking for one that will excel them all. He doesn't want a halfway bride. He doesn't want one that sometimes gets things done. He wants one that gets it done. He wants a doer. He doesn't want a quitter. He doesn't want a fearful or a timid. He wants those who will work hard to be sure that God's household is taken care of. And he is going to pick one, as we know from other scriptures, to lead in the building of the latter temple and setting the example for the world of how things ought to be. So he's telling us in this chapter how they ought to be. And you can spread this chapter throughout the rest of the Bible. So he goes on then to say, favor is deceitful and beauty is vain. We can try to boot polish or whatever, even with God, and find favor. Or we can depend on our physical beauty as a woman, or our, in our own mind, spiritual beauty, however we perceive that. it doesn't mean anything unless it's real. But a woman that fears the eternal, she shall be praised. Fear means, I will do what you say, I will do everything you say, I will do it the way you say, I will please you in everything that I do. We're here to please God. And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. To live by faith means you need to walk where you do not know for sure, where you were going always, or how to get there, but you move forward, and that requires breaking the status quo. Human beings do not like change. They want things to be as they are because they've gotten comfortable the way they are. We have to be willing to change the way things are. Now, you and I have dedicated ourselves to that, have we not? And we're not looked very favorably on by the rest of the church, those who know of us at least. They think we're nuts for doing what we're doing. What's wrong with this sermon? Why would they not like it? Well, they wouldn't like it because it interferes with their focus and what they think ought to be being done right now. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. You don't have to praise yourself. Let the works do it. God says that the servant is worthy of his hire. So if we work hard and we provide everything that the spiritual family of God needs, both in our own lives and in the lives of those around us and the life of the rest of the church as they recognize their need and come looking, we need to be there with the answers, with the help, with the strength to give her what she needs. So the fruit of our hands, if produced in that way, is going to be good. And those works will praise us. We don't have to let our left hand know what our right hand is doing. We just need to be there to serve and help and give and be being prepared in the meantime. Well, there's an awful lot in Proverbs 31 about what you and I need to be doing to prepare ourselves as a bride. Now I'm going to go and finish this up in 1 Corinthians. Let's go to chapter 12. Now concerning the spiritual, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. Gifts here is in italics, it wasn't in the Greek. But now concerning spiritual, he does mention gifts later, so perhaps it's not all wrong to put it in there in italics. Perhaps it is implied as the context will show. So I wouldn't have you ignorant of that. No, if we're not to be ignorant... Let's look at it, and let's look at it in the context of what we've been reading already, and I need to hurry. You know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols, even as you were led. Now, he was speaking to the Corinthians, who were a Gentile church, not physical Israelite blood, but it doesn't matter, because we were all, even though most of us might have had mostly Israelite blood coursing through our veins on a physical level, we were certainly spiritual Gentiles dumb to all those things of God. So we're all equal in that sense. Races has nothing to do with it. Therefore I give you to understand that no man speaks by the Spirit of God, or who speaks by the Spirit of God calls Emmanuel accursed, and that no man can say that Emmanuel is the Lord but by the Holy Spirit. There are a lot of people that use the name, but they don't know the being. They don't even think he really exists. He's a phantom or a spook. So you can't really speak of the things of God or even about God himself unless you have the Holy Spirit. A lot of people think they have the Spirit, and it's the wrong spirit. It appeared to them as an angel of light, but it's still not the right spirit. Satan can transform his ministers into angels of light. It appears that what they have to say is wonderful and good. But if it's apart from the law of God, it is wrong, no matter how sweet it might appear. Now, there are different gifts, but the same spirit. What he's going to begin telling us here in this book, or in this chapter, is that there are all kinds of different people that come together. And we'll all be different, and we'll all have different abilities and capacities and that type of thing. And he's going to say, don't be envious of one another. There will be a different gift, but the same spirit. So we will be different, won't we? There are differences of administration, but the same Lord. Whoever we might have as a physical leader might do things differently than another one would. Some like a black car, some like a red one. ministry used to try to tell you what kind and color to buy and when to do it. No, there are a lot of different ways of doing things. One is not necessarily wrong just because it is that person's way. There are different ways of doing the same thing right. Just because you're right-handed, does that mean what you make is better than someone who is left-handed? Not necessarily. You do the best you can, whichever hand you use. And both can do good work, if they have the capacities to do it. There are different operations, but it's the same God which works all in all. So let's not get too picky and personal about it. Just because somebody doesn't do things the way you would do them doesn't mean they're necessarily wrong. They're just wrong to you because that's not your favorite way of doing it. But if the job gets done, what difference does it make whether they did it exactly your way or not? And yet we frustrate ourselves worrying about that often, don't we? Well, he just doesn't do things right. Right by what standard? Yours. How do you know yours is right or wrong? How do you know his is right or wrong? There are different operations and different administrations and different ways of doing things. But we can get all self-righteous and judgmental because somebody's not doing something the way we would do it. How does that help unity? How does that help building? I used to work with an individual quite a bit, and there was only one way to do something. Now, the way that individual phrased it is, you have to do it right. He said it with just that tone. You've got to do it right. And what was right? He never said, you have to do it my way. But it became very obvious that the only right way was his way. And if you're going to work with him, you did it his way or he threw chairs. That's all there was to it. Couldn't recognize any other way but his way. Well, God says here there are different ways of doing things. And the quicker we can accept that, the better off we're going to be. Because no two people are going to do everything exactly the same way. We can save ourselves an awful lot of frustration if we accept that principle and learn to live with it. Is the way someone's doing that particularly a sin? How does it break the law of God? Now, if it's a sin, that's different. But if it's a different way of doing things, God allows that. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit from. God gives us all His Spirit when we're baptized, and we all need to be profiting from that. Profiting how? So that we become profitable to others, not just to ourselves. That's what we just read about. The household of God needs taken care of. Who's there to do it? He's training a bride to help him do it. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom. Now the virtuous woman is to learn wisdom, isn't she? We just read that. To another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit. Some people just have more knowledge in their head than others. And some say I read it and it just goes away. Well, you know, the amount of knowledge you have is not the full answer by any means. It's the attitude we have and how we go about things. Now, we might walk out of here and forget most of what was said today. Did it affect and help change our attitude, and our approach. If it changes that, then the specifics of everything that was said are not as important. Somebody might remember every word that was said and go out and do just the opposite, and they might have all that knowledge, but how much good would it do if it isn't put to work? None. But if somebody doesn't remember much of it, and they go out and their attitude is different and they approach things in a better way, then it helped them. So wisdom, knowledge, to another faith. Some have more faith than others. To another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit. To another the working of miracles. To another prophecy. To another the discerning of spirit and attitude. To another, different kinds of languages. To another, the interpretation of languages. And you might say, that's well and good, but I don't have any of those gifts. I don't have any of them. All right? Maybe you don't. Maybe we don't. What do we have, then? We have opportunity we may not have much in the way of gifts but we have opportunity we have the gift of the Spirit don't we now it may not be manifested in these outward ways that are obvious to any and everybody (coughs) we may have the Spirit of God and it is only discernible in our attitude and our approach to life and to each other and it's not done in great dramatic fashion I think those who use the Spirit of God to grow and overcome now are going to be used when these gifts are given in a way that they were given to the early New Testament church but began to disappear through the 70 years that that church existed to the point that almost all miracles and healings and tongues and all these things Paul is talking about disappeared from the church and then the church itself essentially disappeared by 100 A.D. And the church of God today has almost disappeared in a little over 70 years, and there's very little left, and there's not much manifestation of healings or faith or any of these things anymore. Very little wisdom and understanding of what's going on. So we are almost without gifts, are we not? But we do have opportunity and understanding so that we can grow and overcome and God might see fit to give us some of those gifts again in the future. Now, we can still be working on wisdom and knowledge, can't we? Even though we might not have these other more dramatic gifts. Okay, in verse 10, To another the work ye of miracles, to another prophecy, to another... Oh, we read that. Verse 11, But all these work, that one and the selfsame spirit, dividing to every man as he wishes, to each individual severally, as he so desires. He may use your natural aptitudes and abilities in certain directions because you have more discernment and ability in one way than you would another, and he will increase those as the character and the ability to be given blessings increases. We do not have a lot of these things now because we are not capable of using them the right way and it would lead to pride, vanity, and ego. There was a time when everybody wanted to be a deacon and everybody wanted to be an elder. Everybody wanted to rise in the hierarchy of the church and there was a lot of pride and envy and vanity and dog-eat-dog and stepping on one another to try to get the favor of the local pastor and of Pasadena and whatever and to be promoted. I hope we've gotten past that. I hope that's not what we're looking for. I hope we're looking for righteousness and serving and giving and helping so that God can ultimately give us some of these gifts in a much more powerful way. But as long as we do not rise above what we have been, He will not do it. For as the body is one, and has many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. We are here. We have been called here by name into the church of God. And we have been called here to do what? to be welded together as one body. Various parts with all kinds of backgrounds and differences, prejudices, ideas, thoughts, to be welded together into one mind, one body. He even says, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be slaves or free men, and we've been all made to think or to drink into one spirit. He says it does not matter what our background is. You take a group of people like this or any group of people in God's church, some are from the country, some are from the city, some are from Thailand, some from Texas, some from Tennessee, some from Timbuktu. He says it's all the same. There's no pride in where we've come from or who we are or anything else. There is only humility before God and repentance and to be poor in spirit and meek and humble. And pride of race, pride of place, pride of education, pride of height or thinness or smartness means nothing. We're all here to divest, divest ourselves of all kinds of pride and to be humble and meek, because we cannot, brethren, be welded together into one unless we become humble. It can't be done. You cannot mix pride with pride and envy with envy, because it just creates conflict. God hates pride of any kind, any kind. What do we have to be proud of? Where we were born? You didn't have anything to do with that. That's just where Daddy and Mommy happened to be. One place is no better than another. You might like it better because that's where you grew up. Fine, but don't be proud of it. You might be proud of the race you are. Nothing to be proud of. It's just who your daddy and mommy happen to be. And most of us are pines 57 anyway. We might be predominantly one or another, but it doesn't really matter. Period. Greek or Jew. We argue over who has the best state in the United States. We haven't gotten over the racial thing yet. Here we have the United States, this Christian nation, and we have racial, racial problems underneath the surface and prejudices that have not been gotten rid of in hundreds of years. We've not been able to overcome that one problem of blacks and whites living together in love and peace and lack of prejudice and thinking one is better than the other. We haven't gotten over it at all as a nation. Have we gotten over it as a church, as a people of God? I remember in the church of God, because of outside pressures, the blacks had to sit in the back. Why the back? Why did the church even separate the whites in the front and the blacks in the back? How did not we put the blacks in the front and the whites in the back? Well, the NAACP would have been happy with that. But the Baptists and the Methodists around us would have been, oh, ready to kill us. It hasn't been that long ago. I can remember it. Yeah, I know I'm old, but it's not that long ago. And still, you'll hear a comment now and then. Well, you shouldn't be in the car with them. Where'd that come from? Racial prejudice of old. We're the same. All of us, together. Being from Baja, Oklahoma doesn't make you any better than anybody else. That's Texas. When are we going to get over our pride, our vanity? I came from Texas, so I chide Texas. But Missouri has its pride, Chumpy. Tennessee has its pride, orange. On and on it goes. I just pick on some of us who are, are from some of those places. California, fruits and nuts. You know, we we all brand each other. Because what we're doing is putting down where someone else comes from so that it might make us feel better about where we came from. It's all rooted in pride that God hates. I'm a human being. You're a human being. We're all sinners. We're all short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter where we came from, does it? We're all the same. Let's get over ourselves and beyond ourselves and blend ourselves together in one hope, one family, together, putting aside our differences in race and geography and knowledge and whatever else we're proud about. I came from a tall family and I'm six feet tall. Who cares? You're that much closer to heaven. Well, some of us are a foot shorter, but whatever. It doesn't matter. How pretty we are or how ugly we are as a human being doesn't matter. Christ came to this earth ugly on purpose so that no one would look to him as being handsome and look to him for that reason. We're here to become welded together as one body, as is Christ. One bride, one body. Use the human body, use the bride. All has to work together in unison. That's what we're here to do. For the body is not one member but many. If the foot shall say, because I am not the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the ear says the same thing, I'm not the eye, does it make it not part of the body? You'd look really funny without ears. What if you were just one big eye? It wouldn't look so good. There was a movie about that years and years ago. It was just this big thing was just an eye with little short feet. I, I don't remember what it was. You have all the body parts that look human, don't you? They don't even have to be pretty parts, just parts. Parts is parts. If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole he, were hearing, where was the smelling? Verse 18, but now has God set the members, every one of them the body, as it has pleased him. You are what you are, and he's put you here as it pleased him. And he's pleased then that we're here, right? Doesn't matter where you're from, what you look like, your education, or how smart you are, what your IQ is, doesn't matter. We're all here to be blended together and to become one. Now, one does not argue and nag and gossip and talk down about the others. I do not sit around and look at my big toe and say, you know, you, you really shouldn't be part of my body. You're kind of ugly. You need trimmed. I don't do that. Why do we do that? Besides that, how do you know you're not the toe? You may just think you're the brain or the mouth or whatever it is you think you are. If we were all to tell what part of the body we think we are, I think the body might be pretty grotesque. We'd have too many of this and not enough of that, wouldn't we? Christ put us here for his own purposes, and he says, blend together now, and become one that works together. You have to have a lot of body parts that work together to even be able to walk. If one part of of your body rebels, you fall on your head or your behind. All parts are needful. If all were one member, where were the body? But now are they many members, yet one body? We're all part and parcel together. And we're all important. And even those parts that don't seem necessary are important. Some of us sometimes feel pretty woeful and unneeded and unimportant, don't we? But it doesn't matter. It says even the uncomely parts have a comeliness. So you're a butt. We all are at times. But I hope that's not our predominant feature. We could have too many of those real easy. So we're all here for a purpose, and we're to be tempered together as one, in verse 24, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked. That there should be no division in the body, all one, peacefully, harmoniously working together to accomplish what the body has before it, and that is to prepare itself as a queen for Christ. One member suffers, all the members suffer with it. One is honored, all rejoice with it. You are the body of Christ, and members in specific or particular. He's chosen you to be whatever part of the body He wants you to be. If you're a little toe, then be a really good one, and don't get in the way of the rest of the body, and hurt and moan and cry and scream. I got my fingers pinched back a few days ago the backward way, and I really, before I got the pressure off, thought I was going to have them all broken. And that's fingers. That wasn't my brain. It wasn't my eyes or my ears. It's fingers. But I'm telling you what, my whole body hurt. I hurt all over when those fingers were pinched. We need to be the same with each other, whatever part we are. That's what we're here for. And then he said he, he gave different offices in the church. But that's not why we're here, for office. We're here for service and giving and to use the opportunity we're given. He says, the the gifts are wonderful if you have spiritual gifts. But he says, let's show you a better way. We have an opportunity. Isn't that what I said earlier? Let's look at chapter 13 real quickly. I can't do it justice because it's about love and that's the greatest of all. But he's saying... Whether a bride of Christ or whether you use the analogy of the human body, he shows you a better way. Now, we may not have all these wonderful gifts, and we may not have the abilities that others have, but we all have an opportunity to do something. And here it is in chapter 13. Though I speak with all languages and angels, and I don't have love, it doesn't mean a thing. It's like brass or tinkling cymbals. It's just noise. And though I have the gift of prophecy, all these gifts we've talked about, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, some people, boy, I, boy, I'm into prophecy. I understand prophecy. Big deal. If you don't have love, you have faith so you can actually make a mountain move over here. It doesn't mean a thing if it isn't done for the purpose of loving and helping others. That's what we're here for. It means you're nothing. I give everything I have to feed the poor and though I give my body to be burned and don't have love. How can you give everything to the poor and how can you even give your body to be burned as a martyr and not have love? Simple. Selfishness. Self-righteousness. Personal gain. Feeling well about yourself. You can give and give and give and do it all in vain. If you're just doing it to let your right hand know what your left hand is doing and to be full of pride and vanity and ego about how much you work, how much you serve, how much you give, how much you feed the poor, how much you do, whatever is good to do. But there's pride and vanity involved. (coughs) And it's going to do you no good in the long run because it's self-righteousness. And we sometimes don't even want to brag about it about how we work all the time, how we serve all the time, how we give all the time. We let those little things creep out now and then because it's pride and vanity and ego. It isn't love. Love is outgoing. Love suffers long and is kind. And her mouth is kindness, Proverbs 31. Love envies not. It not itself is not puffed up, not full of pride and vanity and ego. Are we willing to suffer with each other long, or do we be impatient and angry with one another? Are we easily provoked? Do we think evil? Do we like to look for evil in others? Do we try to see how they're bad so we can feel good? It bears all things. It can handle it. Whatever happens, we're able to bear it. That's because we love other individuals and we're willing to deal with them and bear with them through all their trials and troubles and tribulations and even sins. Can you believe you'd bear with somebody through sin? Oh, well, now wait a minute. They can't do that. Does Christ bear with you and me through sin? He loves us. He's not here to get rid of us. He's here to bring us to repentance and overcome sin, not get rid of us because we have sin. But we're ready to write each other off if we can find sin in each other, aren't we? Where's our patience? Where's our love? Where's our mercy that endures forever? Because we love Him. You know, you can have a lot of wonderful gifts and knowledge and abilities, but if you don't really love people, it doesn't mean a thing. And if you're full of pride and vanity and self, it's worse than nothing. Because then it's hypocrisy. Love never fails, verse 8. Prophecies will be fulfilled. Languages will cease. We'll only have one. Knowledge. It'll vanish away. Won't need a lot of the knowledge we got today. Need a different type of knowledge. So all these things that we're proud of are going away. Not going to be around anymore. So why take pride in them now? God doesn't care where you came from. He cares where you're going. He doesn't care how smart you are. He wants you to wise up. Human beings are so proud of nothing. We have nothing to be proud of, and yet we're proud to the bone. Pride and ugly are the same way. They go clear to the bone. I'm not speaking of physical ugly, because physical ugliness or prettiness has nothing to do with it. It's the mentally and emotionally ugly that go to the bone. Those are the ones that count. But love goes to the bone too. goes to the heart. Love never fails. These other things will be done. We know in part, we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. And <clears throat> only that which has reached perfection through growth, through character building, through love, will be changed and become perfect. Eternal. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. A child has ego, vanity, selfishness, spoiled, rotten, selfish to the core until it's trained out of it. Paul said, put that away. You don't need pride, ego and vanity and I'm better than you or I'm smarter or better looking or I come from a better place in the country than you do or the country alone is proposed from a city. God has brought people from everywhere. When he brings a remnant together, they're going to come from all over the world, all kinds of languages, all kinds of races, all kinds of backgrounds and they're all going to be needing what? To be told, I'm from a better place than you? no. To be fed God's truth. To be fed the things they need to bring peace, happiness, and joy to their lives. So let's quit thinking as children and picking at each other as children and become mature and loving and giving and kind and patient and merciful. That's a better way. Now you may not have many gifts, but you have opportunity to love. Every last one of us has opportunity to show godly love. Every one of us here equally has that opportunity. So put aside our pickiness, our pettiness, our selfishness, our pride, our vanity, and our ego, and help one another. We all say, iron sharpens iron, until it's our turn to be sharpened, and then we get all defensive and self-righteous. When will we be humble and meek, teachable and loving? That's what it's all about. If you want to be the the bride of Christ, you can have faith, you can have hope, and you can have love. But the greatest is to truly love one another. In spite of our differences in abilities, in spite of what part of the body we might think we are or somebody else is, those things don't matter in the final analysis. The true, outgoing love of God is what we need to be doing in order to prepare ourselves as a bride for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to rule the universe.